Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! And a very good morning to listeners. This is Lalita Chalaya, welcoming you to Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR 855 on your AM dial. Now, today we've got a full on program. Um, we have the second part of the interview with um, the Iranian activist Bahaman, and we have um, Marcus Harrington, who does our rank and file part of the program. And I'm hoping to get Kevin Haley um, for the um, usual part of this program, but I'm unable to find his um, contribution for this week, but I will get there. Now, we also... The last part of the program has um, Humphrey McQueen, who is our regular contributor, and he will be talking further about capitalism and lots of different things today. Um, so look forward to that interesting um, exploration of capitalism as such. So let's start with um, Bahaman's interview on Iran. Welcome to 3CR, Bahman, and thank you very much for agreeing to talk to Solidarity Breakfast. And thank you for inviting me. Bahman is um, a left-wing activist, and he has been fighting for democracy in Iran for a very long time, and he, is, he lives in Australia at the moment. When the war f- was finished, Rafsanjani was president of Iran, Hashimi Rafsanjani. He had a neoliberalist idea economic, which is exactly the same time was Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan was in, a, in, a, in, a, in power. In power. Yeah. And this new idea, idea started as a neoliberalism. And this, Rafsanjani said, let's now the war finished, we bring, make every, because uh, until that time, all of the Iranian economy was under the government. But now they say, let's become everything, we now push everything for the, make it uh, privatize, hmm. pri- privatize all of the economy. And that was another disaster. And then uh, because the, this private company came, uh, the workers had no right at all. Because they, the government gave them, give the new bosses all the right. 
And then, uh, yeah, there is one. So the workers and women's rights are, remain oppressed. And what's happening now is purely the, the, the negotiations about the nuclear power production, so to speak, in Iran. And, and the, the young people aren't fighting back. There's, there's no resurgence of any fight back in Iran by the young people. Yes. Uh, you know, the, for the nuclear power, at the moment, Iranian people under a enormous pressure, economic pressure and everything, even the politics and everything. If this deal done, the sign done, it's good for the Iranian people because, and then they no excuse for the government. They have no no enemy. Now we have to, you know, uh, bring a new path, economic, you know, new uh, idea, creating more job, bring back all of those unemployed, uh, put it in a, at workplace again, and also women's rights. For example, now is between 11 million to 12 million workers in Iran. More than two two million is unemployed. Is a lot of people, and most of them are young people. They have no option. Hundreds of thousands of the new graduates from university, now they are unemployed. They don't have a job. This, if this deal done, if, and then government still resisted, they say, well, well, if we can't do this one or that one, if they bring another thing, uh, topple the people, uh, brutalize the people of Iran, and then people, they decide. They will go against the regime straight away. They say, there is, yeah, you know, you have no right to this one. And they will be, will be, you know, go against the will of the government and uh, fighting the government to bring down the down the government. Yes, Let's hope that happens. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's very very positive attitude, Baham. Okay. What's the current situation with trade unions in Iran? Well, the, the trade union, the um, the government not allowed it to workers have they they own you know union or they uh, they can't form the union. They that's can't form union. Yep. There is a yellow union, uh, which is is uh, is uh, called the Islamic Council of the Workers, right. which is is purely from the government. And also, the boss of that one is actually is a, one of the intelligence service of the uh, Iran. Oh. The boss of that one. Oh God! Okay. Yeah, <laughs> that doesn't sound too good no. to me. Which <laughs> uh, is called Mahjoub, Mahmoud Mahjoub. But they are against the all movement. But still, Iranian workers they never sit back, and they establishing their own indifferent idea. They are gathering each other. They have the movement. They have they establishing their uh, councils and sitting many many places and also they uh, organizing the organizing the union for themselves uh, and recently that's uh, for example one of them is called uh, IIWU or Iran Independent Workers Union another one called coordinating committee to help form workers organization there are most of these people in this committee now in prison especially since first uh, of may this year they uh, they all arrested and they put in prison some of these people are in last five six years in prison for example Raza Shahabi Raza Shahabi is nearly five years in a, in a prison that's from the the union the teachers union Mohammed Budaghi nearly six years in prison and still in prison and then Two of the workers from the Iran Independent Workers Union was arrested and now in, in prison. And then uh, and nobody know where they are to get in the six places. And they are going under touch on this. But that's why this uh, union movement are very strong and they they have a lot of demand from the from the government. And this demand from the workers government is they want you know to solve the unemployment and also to not without reason sack any workers from the work. That's not 
number one. Number two is they want to uh, have a, a, a safe place in work environment, which is the work environment are not safe at all in Iran. For example, people workers get electrolyzed. Right. Get suffocated by the gas. They uh, are falling down from the heights. Heights, yes. And also they get killed by the sharp items, which is falling down. There are a lot of these things happening. That's not number two. And also they want to classify the, the works at work. Not all have have, you know, the, and also with a, a different level of the payment. Another one, for, they don't like the privatization. They, yeah, because the privatization, they put the workers and the more, more and more pressure. That's another uh, they want. Another one, they are asking for the insurance and also for the superannuation because many of these one, especially the private one, they don't pay for the for the superannuation yeah. and also for the health insurance. And these are and also they are asking for the to have a right to establish their own union, the independent union, and which is government. They don't like. They say no. Only <laughs> the yellow, the yellow uh, unions, union, yes, which is this belong to the government. The, also. A lot of people, uh, workers, they didn't, uh, you know, they are after to get paid, they, um, uh, you know, th- those postponed uh, wages or unpaid workers because they sometimes they didn't get paid for the la- last six, seven months. Even some of them going more than a year. They haven't paid. When they went there and they asking, they close down the factory and they sack the workers. And they say, no job. But they are fighting. They say, you have to open the manufacturing if now which is happening the workers went open the factory in uh, uh, province of Gilan and they sold the, some of the equipment from the factory and distribute the money to themselves and then the government came and said okay we, we give you back your money that was you know that was how people are devastating the workers for the money and for to survive they have a family and those things and that's uh, another reason and also they were asking for the for the long time agreement right long term agreements yeah long term yeah. agreement because yeah. n- at the moment there is no long time agreement here there is yeah. a white paper sign yeah and also in any time they don't know what's inside that one any so time the uh, yeah the boss they can you know the so they're temporary workers there's no permanency temporary. yeah like casual temporary yes with no other benefit is mean they give them the cash their money is because most privatized now is under the you know the minimum wages minimum wages in Iran is very very low is only uh, 780000 toman is mean make it almost approximately 300 dollars a month for you know for eight, and then is mean 1 dollar 30 cents american dollar per hour that, that's very 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 tough it's ex- you can't extreme ex- exploitation yeah, you can't imagine yes uh, this is why they they asking to you know to this one and also only last year 3,000 uh, strike and rally was happened by the workers in Iran. 3,000 3,000. 3, in, in just from, is mean from last nine months. It's not 12, 12, uh, 12 uh, months. It's nine last months. nine months. Mm. And it is actually more than that one. But this 3,000 actually government approved that one. Mm. The, the speaker, the interior ministry spokesperson just three months ago mentioned this one. They say so how do, how do they approve 3,000 strikes? Because they all, these 3,000 is, uh, it's um, uh, written or, you know, have a, you know, the, they went and they went to the government. For example, they want to front of the... Is it 3,000 separate strikes or are you talking about 3,000 workers striking? No, no, 3,000 separate strikes. Strikes, okay. It means different places. Right. One, in, for example, in uh, Abadan, uh, 
oil refinery yeah another one in shiraz petroleum yep. refinery another one in coal mine in bafq mm. coal uh, the 5000 workers in bafq in mm. iron ore mine they had a strike for four months and they successful and the government set back this is one it's been from all of the all of the all the country 3000 strikes not just if you talking about the how many people millions right. millions of workers you know so they are very strong and very well organized aren't they but now because it's come right up to here they're not scared yes. they want really go straight back to the you know, the nerve of the government right to bring this the government down because these people are from it another one is at the moment is yesterday is two days ago is a nursing for last four months nursing they are on the street because for their condition i'm a nurse uh, yeah, the nurses that's, that sounds good to me <laughs> yeah that's uh they asking for them because the nurses mostly is a woman yes and they have they are discrimination against the women in the workplace in iran everywhere doesn't matter mm. even at home by the male you know even the brother discriminated against the sister because it's not from the people in our culture mm. it's from the government policy right the government pushing always on the media mm. always people telling that women should go to sit at home they are not coming should not come to work mm. they have to go look after the kids and bring the kids that's you know that's why the male dominance now in in Iran. even mm. not just at home even in the workplaces mm. in that's why and then they are against this discrimination at the workplace and also against the payment the woman payment are less three times less than a man ouch that's that's gross yes yeah three times less mm. and that's uh this across approximately even more maybe something higher some places are higher that's why they against that one they want to make equal payment at a workplace at equal payment as a, and also uh, get rid of the discrimination at the workplace so how, do, how so they on strike at the moment or have they been on strike uh, yes uh, two days ago they was they went and uh, they was in uh, uh, front of the parliament they had here yeah, two and also uh, again uh, last saturday they went uh, sunday they went to um, uh, in the qom city mm. there's a two strike in the qom city one strike in tehran yep. and one strike in tabriz Mm. and another strike in uh, Ahwaz which is five strikes started and many of them from the all from those in Tehran because they want and the Tehran is a capital city then the the parliament is there yeah nearly 3000 people they went from all around Iran the nurses to voice themselves all was delegate mm. to telling the government we need our rights mm. as a nurses we need our right because even another another demand is is a gap between the doctor's payment and the nurse's payment and they want bring that one to close to each other because they say now they three to four times they are the doctor get more paid than the nurses mm. and also another new policy for the for the nurses they say you get pay how much you work okay how much you work if you only for example treating two patient you get only payment for two patient what if you get four patient you get for patient that's just very unusual that's that's what you call piecework in in the clothing industry if you if you if you stitch two shirts you get paid for two shirts yeah. so, so that's piecework that's yeah. what it is Pe- they make people into piece that's why they against that one they want to bring it down to not go in, still it didn't go become as a legislation but it's going now in in a, in a parliament they, that's why yesterday two days ago they went in front of the parliament to voice up against that one we don't want this 
policy uh, this are happening. Also, the teachers. The teachers now is nearly five months under. And again, they are the last week they was came back. Most of the cities again, and they 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 are um, demanding the um, extra pay. You know the get more payment because the teachers, teachers, nurses, the workers are the lowest paid you know, mm -hmm. get pay in Iran. And they are asking for the more pay. And also the um, education ministry, they have less money this year than the previous year and those things. You know, the budget one, they want, because this budget, if the lower budget is affecting to the teachers yes. because they get less payment. And have. health is privatized as well? Not yet, but it's, it is a lot of privatized, privatized it's school there. A lot mm. of things. They they pushing for that one. Right. They pushing to become even education completely become uh, yeah privatized. Mm. Neoliberal and agenda. That yeah. that is against again one of the uh, teachers' demand. Right. Nothing. Yeah. It have to be with the government. Yep. <clears throat> because they can better fight. Yeah. Not privatization. Of course. It's, it's also good for the, the, the population, the people, that That's it's right. under government control. That's correct. That's and right. is, is, is education free in, in Iran? Uh, no. But you pay for you it? You have to pay. And very expensive. That's high expensive because some people, they can't pay. They uh, Nearly this year, only more than 100,000 people just took their kids from the school out. That's uh, they, because they didn't couldn't pay for that, mm. for that, that uh, school, uh, you know, um, equipment of education. school education and everything because that money they go into the rent oh. they don't have paid the rent sure. the, now is the rent is very higher than if you are uh, workers get 300 dollars a month mm. but the rent is nearly 1000 that is uh, nearly 700 dollars they can't pay that one no, that's why no. they take off their kids from the school yes that money go to the rent rent they have something a roof on you know, on the top of their head. That's right. That's that's another th things, yeah. And also the censorship. A lot of censorship ha is in Iran. Mm -hmm. That's why censor. That's why these teachers they want to get rid of these censors, mm -hmm. not controlled by the government because they want. Yeah, they want. And also they asking. They asking to uh, for the. They have their own right for the strike, and also for the right to have their own union, teachers union. And another one is they because these are. Uh, in education, the actually in uh, education ministry or in whole, is it, there is a lot of the um, police, you know, the uh, ideology is mean the government controlling everything mm. because it's education. It's a police state. Police state. Yeah. They want to get rid of, to, to get rid of, of that one. Yeah. Uh, to be be free of the police uh, state. Control. Yeah. Control of this yeah. one. And that's the, yeah, they want to abolish that one. That. And also the, for the, for the insurance, for the insurance for super superannuation. Hmm. This, this, many of these demands are similar. Hmm. Workers, teachers, uh, nurses. Yeah. They all, because all in, in one country, and yeah. they, the government, you know, they have the same things. But some of them, for example, may be a little bit different, but yeah. all similar, similar, similar demands. Yeah. Even the, in this situation, the university student, they're supporting all of these ones. Mm. They all, yeah, they come into the street with uh, supporting the workers, mm. the university. Even the bakeries came out. Now it's bakeries they want because there is not much flour. Uh, bread price, very high, higher. Even the, the agriculture people, you know, these are the petrol, gasoline, and these ones, uh, they are very expensive. They can't buy this one. Oil producing country and oh. they can't buy oil. No. That's an irony. The reason because most of this one, they exported. Yes. For them make cash for them, for their military uh, agenda, for their own, you know, the government pocket. Yes, of They're course. They're not thinking about the people. Okay.
That's it. Anything that's else? That's it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. That, that's very informative. If you have just tuned in, you're listening to Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, and streaming live online. I am Lalita Chalaya, and we are live. Um, I just wanted to um, update listeners with a couple of issues in relation to Iran. There's a um, activist called Reza Shahabi who is still in prison. He was a transit worker and a member of the board of directors of the Syndicate of Workers of Tehran, which I mean, I I am assuming that is a bit like the ACTU. And the suburbs bus company has been, they have, he has been incarcerated in Tehran's Evin prison since June 12, 2010, only because of his advocacy for workers' rights and supporting the demands of his fellow workers. Now, we are highlighting the challenges relating to the total disregard of the plight of jailed labor activists in Iran. And this comes from a website called International Alliance in Support of Workers in Iran. So no labor activists have been released in recent months despite the despite Iran's relations um, stunt and selective release of a few political prisoners of recent weeks. All political prisoners must be released immediately is a demand this organization is putting forward. Now, if you wish to um, explore this um, a little bit more, um, do visit that website. Now, Amnesty International has, International has also put out a call. It says, we are writing to protest the continued persecution of labor activists and the gross violation of workers' rights in Iran. We continue to witness many labor activists brutally persecuted and unjustly imprisoned. We strongly condemn the unjust arrests and sentences against labor activists. We also denounce ongoing persecution and arrests of labor activists in Iran. We demand the immediate and unconditional freedom of all detained labor activists in Iran. And it also states, it is the website, the International Alliance in Support of Workers in Iran, also states this. The entire delegates from Iran to the International Labour Organization are made up of mercenaries of the IRL, which is the Iranian government, the so-called workers' representatives, essentially yellow union representatives. Among Iranian delegates are representatives of government-sponsored organizations like the Islamic Councils, Workers' House and their trade associations, which have had a direct role in the suppression of labor activists and workers' rights in Iran. So that is a statement about the ILO by Amnesty International. So, as I said, if you're interested, there are a couple of websites you can have a look at. Of course, Amnesty International and International Alliance in Support of Workers in Iran. Now, the other issue I guess we should talk about a little bit is um, the treaty that's being or agreement is being signed between Iran and US where now the Republican Republicans in the US are protesting vehemently against the signing of the agreement and of course John Kerry the um, state secretary has trying to persuade has been trying to persuade the Republicans about this now the website US law has put out a statement in relation to this it says if the, if congress rejects the agreement with Iran the sanctions regime sorry the sanctions regime will quickly unravel russia and Ch- china and others will abandon sanctions the iranians who already believe the agreement violates their national sovereignty and who as a signatory to the nuclear non 
Proliferation Treaty, uh, entitled Develop Peaceful Uses of Nuclear Energy, will refuse to return to negotiations. Iran will then be free to pursue any nuclear program it wants without any inspections. This will pave the road to war. The agreement virtually forecloses Iran developing a nuclear weapon for at least 10 to 15 years. It subjects Iran to unprecedented inspections and oversight to which no other country in the world must submit. So in itself, this agreement is a bit of an insult to Iran, but obviously they're having things in exchange for signing the agreement. The answer is a nuclear-free zone in the Middle East. But the country that provides the strongest incentive for Iran to develop a nuclear weapon that has militarily attacked Iran in the past and threatens to do so again won't even acknowledge that it possesses nuclear arms, won't submit to inspections and won't sign the treaty to eliminate them. Israel is the principal barrier to a nuclear-free Middle East. So the, if the U.S. were to invest the same level of energy and commitment to that objective as it has to secure the Iran agreement, it would change the course of many Middle East conflicts. But to do so, it must become an honest broker rather than Israel's enabler and apologist. So that's, that's, that's an interesting statement coming out of this particular website. And they certainly put out some sensible statements, to say the least, so what I thought we'll do is um, go on to some announcements because Marcus Harrington's um, contribution is waiting to be played. For those who are um, raring to do some protests, there's a very active day today. As many of you know, the ALP National Conference is taking place at the Melbourne Convention Centre, Melbourne Convention and Exhibition Centre at the South Bank. Now there's a rally for clean energy at this conference at 11 a.m. In fact, they're protest starting earlier from what I believe. The second um, or the follow-on from that would be stop Labour's cruel refugee policy. And at this particular part of the protest, it's demanding that there be no offshore processing, no to mandatory detention. And their speakers, there's um, Sue Lyons, who's an ALP uh, senator, Pamela Kerr from the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre, Aaron Mailwaganam from the Tamil Refugee Council, Mohammed Bakri, an Afghan refugee, Michael Michelle O'Neill, sorry, um, State Secretary of Clothing, Textile and Footwear Union of Australia. So that will be at 12 p.m. So you have got two um, back-to-back protests there. And there's another one at um, the same venue, again the same conference, demanding a binding vote to marriage equality. That'll be at 1 p.m. So you've got a whole morning of um, morning and afternoon of activists out there protesting. So if you're most welcome to join at any time. There should be heaps of things going on at the convention center outside. Um, so feel free to participate. Now, there's one other function that's happening, which is the um, Tamil, uh, Tamil Feast at the National Refugee Rights Conference. They are holding a Sri Lankan vegetarian banquet of curries, chutneys, vades, dars, dal, kurma, and lots of other yummy food. There will also be a fun Tamil music and bar. Tickets are on sale online. The function is being held at series, different venue, take note. It's a community kitchen on the corner of Stewart's and Robert Street, Brunswick. So you have lots of activities going on here. 
today. So if you've got a boring day, there you go. Now, on the 26th of July, there is、um, a conference taking place. That's tomorrow. So, the National Refugee Rights Conference is being held as many refugee rights activists from around the country will be in Melbourne. So, it's going to be a massive convergence of people onto the convention centre. So, the National Refugee Rights Conference is being organised by the Refugee Action Collective. They're taking advantage of all these people who are coming around from or across the country to protest against the ALP's turn to the right, I suppose. So, the conference is taking place at the Australian Nurses and Midwifery or Midwives Federation House. It starts at 10, it's 10 to 3 at 540 Elizabeth Street, Melbourne. It's just near the Vic Markets. So if you missed that, tomorrow between 10 and 3 at the Australian Nurses and Midwifery Federation, 540 Elizabeth Street, Melbourne. I'll just play a plain announcement before we go on to Marcus Harrington. Want to support Tricia's diverse and independent voices? Donate to Tricia's annual Radiothon. We still need your support, and it's not too late to donate. Donate now by calling 94198377 8377 or donate online at tricia.org.au or post us a check or money order to Post Office Box 1277 Collingwood 3066. And for all those people who had、um, promised a donation to Solidarity Breakfast, please. Meet those、um, promises you made and, and pay up as we have to have the money to run the programs. And those who haven't donated and who would like to donate and enjoy our, our radio, please send in a check. You can ring, ring us on 94198377 to make a donation. <laughs> The Kurdish Workers' Party, otherwise known as the PKK, was established in 1984 to fight for the self determination of Kurdish people in Turkey. It is supported by millions of Kurds and in recent times has played a crucial role in defending Kobani and Rojava against ISIS. Yet the Australian government named the PKK as a prescribed terrorist organisation in 2005. And it has remained on the list ever since. The listing comes up for review in August 2015. Australians for Kurdistan Committee in Melbourne is calling for the PKK to be delisted and are collecting endorsements. You can add yours by going to www.liftthebanonthepkk.org. Australians for Kurdistan Committee in Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. And、um, just to add to that petition, a Kurdish boy who had gone to,、um, or was it Reese Harding, I think his name, went to Kurdistan to fight with the Kurds against ISIS. His body's arriving and there's a funeral coming up.、Um, I haven't got the details on me, but. There are people who are going overseas to fight on the right side of the fence. 
So please, I'll encourage everyone who's listening to go to the website and sign that petition. Now, we go on to Rank and File Radio. On today's edition of Rank and File Radio on Community Radio 3CR 855 on the AM dial, we go to the second part of the interview with Dean Moyle. We have to challenge bad laws and any law that doesn't allow the work of the right to mature their labour. The fundamental right to meet is, is never going to be acceptable. And challenging bad laws, standing up to bad laws in the state is uh, some which has been going on since uh, those heroes at Ballarat in 1854, the, the heroes of the Eureka movement, which they did and we still do today. Yeah, they did. And, and it's interesting. Yeah, it's, it's reasonable to draw a parallel with uh, what the diggers at Eureka did. You know, they collectively came together, they met, um, they took collective action. Uh, many lost their life as a result of doing it, but it was for, for democracy. I always think that in a in a country that prides itself on its democratic rights, well, surely one of those democratic rights has to be for a worker to withdraw their labour, just exactly the same way the bosses are free to withdraw their capital. And uh, it's, this society doesn't care about how employers withdraw their capital. It's almost a God-given right when money rules to say, well, if you've got money, I can withdraw it, I can close the company down, I can do what I like. But God help a worker that... Um, or the union that says, I'll withdraw my labour because this is unfair. And uh, that's always got to be challenged. I'll never rest easy with this country's laws when they failed democracy that way. And in recent times we've seen the undemocratic um, Australian Building and Construction Commission and then the Fair Work Building and Construction Commission, which uh, basically have more powers than the police and the courts. Oh, absolutely. Coercive powers against workers, you know, to see a construction worker... Uh, not afforded the right to silence, not afforded the right to legal counsel, uh, to not be afforded the same rights you would be if you were charged with rape or armed robbery. I don't get that. I think that, you know, society just says, oh, well, they're construction workers because they've been demonised in the press too bad. It is bad. It's very, it's really bad. And I was so disappointed after the Your Rights work campaign in 2007 that that body wasn't abolished. I know I had personal commitments from <clears throat> from Rudd that it would be abolished and, uh, of course, I think Labor changed the name of the of the body, but coercive powers, its fundamental being, was still unchanged. I felt great betrayal in that. And even the Your Rights at Work campaign uh, went from worth fighting for to simply uh, worth voting for, which... Uh basically gave a lot of workers the message. All they had to do was go to the ballot box and everything would be right for the next four years, which we know you can't rely on the on the ballot box. Yeah, we should be mindful of that history um, because the Your Rights at Work campaign was fantastic. I, I mean, I loved that. And I you know, I was in awe of the campaign. The way the community got together, unionists, community members, Greens Labor... People wanted decency and fairness in our workplace. It wasn't an ALP campaign, though the ALP was the beneficiary, I suppose, it formed government and took Howard out. But it just showed you what the union movement was capable of It acted independently. And I just thought, well, this is the start of a new beginning. And, of course, Labor wins government. Jeff Lawrence has installed as the secretary of the ACT because Combe had foolishly gone into parliament and that didn't work out so well. And, you know... We again, we took that big sweeping tablet. Um, the ACTU sent a woman by the name of Kath Botel, very bright, intelligent woman, to negotiate with Labor on behalf of the unions, the Fair Work Act, 
Interesting, when I you know, came back and was an appalling result for workers. It was an appalling betrayal for the Your Rights at Work campaign. And of course, Kat Botel pops up as the ALP candidate for the federal seat of Melbourne, you know, and I, I just that conflict of interest always kills me that, you know, Kat's negotiating with someone she hopes to be her next employer, you know, that, that conflict of interest. Anyway, we should learn from that. Well, I think that unions, you know, in terms of learning from what happened about having, you know, the conflict of interest with the Labor Party, I'm not anti-Labor Party person, but if you're sending someone from behalf of the union movement who's every intention of becoming a Labor Party federal member of Parliament to negotiate with their next employer about what would be a fair outcome, then that's, that's fundamentally wrong. You know, I just think that whole ALP union affiliation model uh, is wrong. There needs to be a better way. I've always advocated that my own union. Uh, rank and file voted to become independent. I think it was one of the, one of the best political moves my union ever made. And, uh, you know, perhaps the union movement's not ready yet, but it ought to take great joy out of the Your Rights at Work campaign. And even young Luke Halakari at Trades Hall in the last state election, yep. in a small way, really applied those smarts and ran a great campaign. Um, and so far, Daniel Andrews, I think, has been pretty bloody good. Uh, the way he's dealt with it. But I mean, here's, a, here's a young fellow who's a leader who came out and the first things he said in his union in his acceptance speech were about unions. Um, I'd never heard that in my life, a Labor leader do that. So full credit to him for that. And I know Bill Shorten was only a few steps away. I hope you listened. And it was under your leadership, the members of uh, the Electrical Trades Union were given a vote in response to uh, political affiliation. What was the uh, rank and file's response? Yeah, well, it was an interesting move. You know, I thought that if at a state council level we we simply, or, or an executive level of the union, we said we're disaffiliating, uh, then you know the people will say, well, that was just you. And I thought this is this is a decision our members should take. And I think that they actually really enjoyed being given the opportunity to have a say in that. We got an enormously high return, a non-compulsory ballot run by the Electoral Commission. I think we got around about a sixty percent return. You know, for people, you know, 19,000 sparkies sitting in their own home saying, yeah, I'm going to have a vote, and that's a high return. And I think 87% voted to become independent, not challenge any union to run a yes and no case, send it out there and see what your members have to say. OK, if we um, go back to Campaign 2000, which you mentioned uh, earlier in the program, which uh, Campaign 2000, I understand, was a uh, industry-wide uh, campaign um largely to try and get around the, the uh, rigours of enterprise bargaining? Yeah, it was to a degree. What we would seen through, the, one of the failings of enterprise bargaining is that we broke down that lovely collective approach we used to have. We used to campaign around awards. And when Keating brought it in, it wasn't a good fit for all industries. Um, it left a lot of workers behind. And, of course... Wages and conditions in this country were built on the back of national campaigns to approve standards, improvements to annual leave, maternity leave, sick leave, long service leave. You know, all, so many core things were won by massive national campaigns. Enterprise bargaining shot that in the head on the spot. What we were trying to do is to say, hey, as an industry, we care about this. So these should be the minimum standards for our industry. Plus, if you want to, go away and bargain at your workplace or anything else that you can get in genuine negotiations with the employer. So it was to wrestle it away simply from workplace by workplace where the strong succeed and the weak get nothing 
to have a bit of a balance about that. I think it was a very good model, and I think it's the sort of model that should apply. But um, enterprise bargaining, while it presents great opportunities for organising unions, will see the weak get nothing, and that that's a real problem. Okay, and if we can go back uh, earlier in the um, show, we uh, spoke about your role as a shop steward. I remember a meeting uh, many years ago, you said every factory you went to, you'd uh, pin the Lawson quote on the wall. <laughs> the little Lawson palm. And we will fly rebel flag as others did before us, yeah. That's true. Um, yeah, it did, you know. You always used to know my colours to the masters. And one of my, I don't know, some would say... Uh, Successes, some would say, are failing. You know, you, I think you stand up for who you are, but yep. always let the bottle, uh, the the bosses see um, the Henry Lawson <coughs> poem, and where it ends when they need to say the fault was ours, the blood should stain the waddle. I always felt a bit intimidated by that, but I was always a pretty hardcore steward and health and safety rep. It was my job. And uh, what uh, key lessons or points uh, could you teach shop stewards today? I think the lesson is for unions that shop stewards are everything. At the ETU, I always used to praise the role of our stewards because I relied on them. Um, they were our sergeants in the field. They would inform us. They would be incredibly important about the decisions they would make um, because of the work they used to do. And we were a union at the ETU and still are with Troy, you know, that all of our officials come from the shop floor. Okay. They all know what it's like to be a steward. So... I think the stewards, you know, the stewards need to be dealt in and valued. Every good union in this country's history has relied on a good job stewards network. And that's probably one of the most important things I'd say to any union. Make sure your delegates' network is strong, well-informed, active and included. And I think that should be a key rule in every union that uh, organisers should come from the shop floor rather than uh, people out of, if I can say, out of university and the like. Well, we haven't seen too many of them <clears throat> make an extremely valuable contribution. There's room for it. Yep. I know Greg Combe came up through the industrial ranks of the MUA in New South Wales and you know, went on to make a great contribution to the union movement in a lot of ways. Um, but you know, I think that your core organising people need to understand the pressures and the hardships that a shop steward will go through in a workplace. It is a tough, hard role to do well. And unions need to be able to train and support those stewards. That's critical. You know, you can't... In the old days of the ETU, when the union's weak, your stewards get blacklisted. I saw ETU stewards in the late 80s and early 90s before we took over blacklisted and couldn't work for 18 months. You know, you have to be tough as a union to defend your stewards. Do whatever it takes to defend them because without them, you're nothing. That's my view, you know. That's my lessons from unionism, from being a steward to becoming a state secretary. I've never, ever lost to me how important my stewards were. OK, what, uh, what issues do you think unions today uh, should be campaigning for or against? Well, legislative change. You know, the workers' rights need to change in this country. We need our rights back. Uh, that's really, really important to have that political voice. But for God's sake, don't let it be reliant on any political party. Make it... <laughs> You know, unions should be acting in the best interest of their members when it comes to politics and start putting some pressure back on Labor to be Labor again at a federal level. At a state level, I think they get much better yep. in Victoria. At a federal level, you know, if Shorten's going to be the next Prime Minister, well, really tell us what you're going to do. Tell us what you're going to do about the ABCC and pressure for that change. Just don't support them simply because they're better than the Libs. I mean, they've been doing it for years. It hasn't worked. Um, so that, that, on a political sense, that's one thing. 
The unions have to be mindful of increasing wages and conditions. You've got to do that through organising. Strong delegates networks inform members, included members. You know, I always used to say when you organise, you come to the ETU, you have faith in your members. Lead them, give them something to follow, but engage them because they're the best source of information you've got and you have faith in them because they're good. And if you inform them and include them genuinely, um, your members will never steer you wrong. They'll, they'll put faith in you as long as you do the right thing by them. And that's what all our wages and conditions, everything we enjoy today was all uh, hard fought and won by workers and their unions. Uh, nothing was ever ever gifted to us by the boss or the uh, or the government. Yeah, I think, Marcus, it's, um, it's a fundamental belief I have that workers want to be a part of something strong yep. with the union. You've seen a lot of criticism over the AWU recently, you know, and they haven't operated... Well, you know, they've been a soft option union, a tame cat union, and um, you know, I've tried to defend Bill Shorten and the Royal Commission stuff because it's such a bastard of a process. But in reality, um, you know, workers should demand to be a part of a strong union, a strong and strategic union. And if you ever don't become a strong union, if you ever run an event where bosses are buying tables to win favour, something's really at the fundamental core wrong. Um, and it, you, you do compromise. If you look at the unions like the ETU or the CFMEU or the ANF, uh, even um, the Firefighters Union, good, strong unions and good, strong rank-and-file involvement. And I think that's so important, you know, so important. Uh, workers want to know their leadership are acting for them. They want to know that they care about what they say and that their decisions are paramount. So, yeah, but this, this is fundamental unionism. It hasn't really changed... The core values of good unions haven't changed in 150 years. And uh, surely a trade union ceases to be a union once they start accepting uh, money and uh, gifts off employers. Uh, we never did it. Now We'd never have dinner with a boss. We'd never go to their corporate functions. We'd never you know, have a hospitality box anywhere. There'd be none of that sort of stuff with us. Yeah, that's a bit old school if you like, but, you know, seriously, don't go there. Um, your members don't want to see you in a corporate box with a with, a, with an employer. They don't. And uh, what reason have you got for being there? Seriously. Having a happy chat? You know, ridiculous. Have a happy chat over a coffee in a coffee shop, you know. Buy one for them. Oh, that's right. There's no, no uh, such thing as a free lunch. No, there's not. There's not, you know. Like businesses use corporate facilities to woo clients. Any union that goes to a corporate function, invited by a boss, what do you think they're trying to do? You know, they're there because they like you. Wake up yourself. <laughs> Okay, um, so you're retired now as the leader of the ETU, but you're obviously still active in the union movement, Dean? Yeah, I've been doing a bit of work for the Firefighters Union, um, okay. uh, which has been fantastic, you know, helping them with their campaign last year, helping Peter Marshall. Um, he's just a, a totally focused uh, union secretary who is so uncompromising when it comes to his members' interests. You know, people should have a look at the likes of Peter and why is he successful, but geez, he, he works hard. So hopefully I've been able to take a little bit of pressure off him and help him out. It's been good, you know, so using all those years of experience again, it's been it's wonderful. I'd, you know, I'd help any union that, that needed to chop out. OK, uh, thanks for coming on today's program of uh, Rank and File Radio, Dean, and talking about the Accord, amongst other things. <laughs> yeah, no worries, Mark. It's been, been good talking to you.
Hi, I'm Rod Quantock and you're listening to Fill in the Dots. You know who you're listening to. Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to. You're listening to, yes, Fill in the Dots. 3CR Community Radio, you got it right, you've won a giraffe. Uh, we're at 8.55am, we're on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au. 3CR has been making trouble since 1976 and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch and go up to the Dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers and let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by Neil Mitchell. Thank you, Rod, <laughs> and all those who have won the giraffe. Here we go. This is a song I've had um, wanted to um, play for, since the Reclaim Australia movement came along. Just to tell them, the land is not yours to reclaim. And here we go. This is Cap Comedy. Welcome to 3CR Solidarity Breakfast, Kevin. Nice to invite you live. Yes, well, <laughs> better, better than not being alive, that's true. <laughs> Bit of a disaster, in other words. We fixed it now, so we're I'll, good. I won't, I'll leave it out of the script now, but I was thinking you might be able to answer this one for me, Lali, because um, I mentioned it on City Limits through the week. When, when the, I believe the talk back radio people around Melbourne, I don't listen to them, but have been attacking the left for refusing the the right to free speech of the of the fascists so they can um, preach hate speech and oh, um, racial vilification, etc. And I thought, at what point, the famous Bonhoeffer quote, first they came for the gypsies, then the communists, then the jets, etc., that one. Yep, yep. At, the talkback people, at what point would they say people should have stepped in in that process, do you think? I don't know. That's a very difficult question. <laughs> yes, yes, interesting, isn't it? Putting me on the spot. <laughs> anyway, let's get into this. It's a weak solidarity brekkie team lister when True Blue Aussie Sport almost had its second great white shark, but that shark has nothing on the sharks at the International Monetary Profits Fund and World Profits Bank and the Euro Profits Central Bank, or any bank for that matter, but let's not go there. They all support austerity for everyone else. Hang on, I'll come back to this because Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo Little Billy short and ambition is trying to tell us something. What is it, Little Billy? Turn it back. Sink it. Turn it back from True Blue Aussie. Uh, turn what back, Little Billy? The Socialist Party's socialist policy. Now, what's the problem? We haven't seen it for years. That's why. It's all at sea. We have to stop it getting here. Turn it around. Sink it. Send it back. Hmm, oh, well, we'll come back to that. But the banks who all support austerity for everyone else, but one of the great believers in austerity, poor neutral speaker Bronnie Bashup, the socialist, we recall last week we commented that her beehive looked more like a European wasp nest as if shaved off by a helicopter rotor or bashed by a golf club as she expelled the week that was under Rule 99B for asking an impertinent question. Well, socialist MPs have been thrown out of the house for smiling, showing, I suppose, Bronnie at least realises that having her as Speaker is no laughing matter. But all we, but all we hear in Parliament, I did say, is the socialist member for whatever is expelled under Rule 94B. 99B is for commoners like you. 
No, no, seriously, poor Bronnie's on parole or probation or whatever, even though everything she did was within the guidelines. I spoke about the workings of Parliament at all these caring business class party fundraisers. All of them, Ronnie. Well, yes, for example, the pilot asked me how come I was using a helicopter at massive public expense. The workings of Parliament, I said. The workings of Parliament. <laughs> to one of the numerous revelations about her modest lifestyle, that she took a chauffeured public purse limousine 400 metres to a meeting when there was a shuttle bus provided, she explained she had all this work to do, prompting us to ask, as Speaker, apart from tossing all the socialists out of the joint, what exactly is work? And obviously it never struck her that she could actually walk the 400 metres back to her luxury suite. We asked Big Supremo Tiny a bit more for the bosses why the caring business class party had demanded that slippery Pete must resign had him charged and pursued him through the courts, but claimed the brony matter was closed. You can't compare them. You can't compare them. They are very different, very different. Uh, how? The slippery slope was done for peanuts, less than a grand. In Bronnie's case, it's hundreds of thousands. You can't compare them. And Bronnie didn't rat on the caring business class party. Although, might I point out, as speaker, she is neutral. As speaker, she is neutral. So the socialists and the left-wing commie greenie media like Lord Rupert of Wapping can't have it both ways. They can't say she must be neutral and then say she can't attend a caring business class party fundraiser to discuss the workings of Parliament, to discuss the workings of Parliament when she is neutral. Oh, so she could take a helicopter ride to a Socialist Party fundraiser, for instance. Uh, well, yes, she could. Bronnie, of course, has long been a trenchant opponent of government waste, excoriating in that delightful way of hers. <laughs> oh, no, let's be honest, we're all saying it. It couldn't happen to a nicer, could it? <laughs> excoriating in that delightful way of hers anyone who would waste public funds on those who still live in the age of entitlement, dole bludgers and welfare cheats, which is anyone on welfare, and single mums and parents who want to send their kids to state schools and the sick and the homeless. Oh, the list of hangers-on just goes on. Well, take the sick. They're crippling the economy. We, we just can't afford them. And if they get injured in some out-of-the-way spot, they even expect a not-quite-as-free-as-Bonnie's helicopter ride to their hospital bed or their emergency ward for a few days' bed and tiny and neutral Bronnie and New South Wales Supremo Mike Baird tax the poor. No, the only solution is to tax the poor. Uh, but hang on, Tiny, the Medicare levy is designed to pay for the universal free health system. Free, free. There's that sense of entitlement again. Well, it's not really free. People pay for it through the levy. So if we need more, we just increase the levy. And there's the problem. There's the problem. The levy takes more from the rich and less from the poor. The only truly responsible, fair way to pay for health and all those services the bludgers claim is to increase and broaden the GST. Increase and broaden the GST. That way the poor can't bludge on the rich. And it does wonders for their esteem when they realise they are being taxed at the same rate as the rich who understand what's good for them. What's good for them.
uh, good for the rich. You're bringing class war into it again. What's good for the rich is good for those whom the rich know what is good for them. Know what is good for them. But let me point out, I am not saying we would introduce the GST because that is a matter for the states. But I must say, I welcome Mike Baird takes the pause sensible suggestion. The Business Profits Council said tax was an ongoing debate, ongoing discussion. If we do succeed in having a sensible reduction in corporate and high-income personal taxes, then we must start again by pointing out that corporate taxes and high-income personal taxes are destroying the economy, crippling the country, and making True Blue Aussie uncompetitive. Uh, but how could we afford to lower them even further? We must depend more on sensible, fair taxes like the GST. There is ample scope for it to increase even further after we succeed in increasing and broadening it. For the common good, of course. We are great believers in world's best practice. Oh, like a dollar a day uh, clothe, a dollar an hour clothing workers, or genus two dollar a day happy, happy Africans. Exactly. That is world's best practice, very worth believing in. This commentator in the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review could be landed with a writ any time now, as his paper pursues relentlessly its campaign that the GST is the fairest of all fair taxes, allowing unfair taxes like company taxes and income taxes on the rich to be slashed, but only so True Blue Aussie can operate on the great level playing field of world's best practice competition policy, and of course the poor will be compensated. This commentator praised Mike Baird tax the poor for his suggestion. At least bad tax the poor is landing the ball on the fairway, not teeing off into the forests of left populism like hoo-hoo. Can't we see the Ritz flying? Hoo-hoo, of course, our very own state supremo. How irresponsible to use the words hoo-hoo and left in the same sentence. The president was said in an interview as he first became Socialist Party Supremo when the journalist asked him about his membership of the Socialist Left of the Socialist Party, leading to hoo-hoo three times making it clear he might be a member of that faction, but I'm not a socialist. I am not a socialist. I am not a socialist. He stated the totally unnecessary. And thrice did he refuse. Also displaying the naivety of the journalist who could even contemplate there might be anyone approaching a socialist in any faction of the Socialist Party, which, as we said, is holding its national insomnia talk fest this weekend. <laughs> they stood and carried on, applauded endlessly with massive excitement as if Supremo Little Billy is a pop star as he entered triumphantly, despite what might be happening in the back rooms and then endorse their socialist credentials by agreeing it is in the interest of humanity to sink the boats or, or turn back the boats for the good of the people trying to bludge on our goodness. I commend to this humane, radical, socialist conference this recommendation that we endorse the compassionate policies of the caring business class party. Oh, you mean the socialist party? An interjector interjected at this obvious slip of the tongue. No, I mean the caring business class party. Tiny can't attack us if we agree with everything he says. That way we will give the True Blue Aussie people an opportunity to make a choice for our exciting policies and our exciting Supremo, oh, that's me, 
without Tiny attacking our policies. It's brilliant. Three cheers for Operation Sink the Boat, Sovereign True Blue Aussie Borders and our brave, fearless train killers confronting these no-proper-papers, queue-jumping, illegal boat-people terrorists so we can enjoy the freedoms our brave train killers have won for us in all those national value-forging invasions and liberations. Finally, listener, I was forced yesterday to check the calendar. This news report that the hazel wooden coal destroy the planet fossil lot is testing a mix of fossil coal and timber to keep the destruction running, ending with this bit that had me running for the calendar. Hazelwood, Hazelwood, um, the would would therefore qualify for renewable energy credits. Digging up coal and chainsawing forests is renewable. Turning desperate refugees back to the vicissitudes of the high seas is humane. It must be, I thought, though I'm sure it's not, but I checked just in case, and no, it wasn't April the 1st. So, so who needs satire? Good morning. Good morning, Kevin. Thank you so much. <laughs> okay, thanks, See you Marley. next week. Bye. Okay, see you, comrade. Now we move on to Humphrey, our regular contributor. Morning, Humphrey. How are you all? I'm good, I'm good. I've just me at the panel today, so oh, we just have just, to have a oh, one. Well, good. <laughs> it's good fun anyway. So, we are going to talk about what's capital this week? Yes, we've been talking, uh, you know, once a month about various aspects of capital and mainly about why, it has, why capitalism has to expand in order to exist. And, of course, we got to the point where we've been talking about this thing, capitalism, and capital without saying what it was. So, <laughs> That's fair enough. <laughs> we can't do everything at once. No. <laughs> um, in 25 minutes, we, you know, there's so much. So this time I thought we should concentrate a bit on what it is that we are talking about when we talk about capitalism and define what capital is within the capitalist system. Um, because it's that difference, I think, that we have to get clear first. Um, we're always up against the propaganda uh, that is being put out in order to defend the capitalist system, which is designed to make it harder to understand these things. Uh, And one of the ways in which the apologists for capitalism do this is to claim that capital has always been with us. That, and they give, you know, mad examples like, well, if somebody 10,000 years ago picks up a... um, a stick and starts to um, to dig with that, then that stick is capital, um, and that is the same as the you know the production capacity of General Motors, for example. Um, they claim that it's eternal, that it's natural, and that it's universal. So there's nothing to explain. Now, of course, one of the sidelines of this is that if that's true, then it's never going to go away. And we're stuck with it forever, and therefore we shouldn't even think about an alternative for the capitalist system. So one of the things we have to do to begin with is to realise that we're being fed these versions of how it is that the capitalist system came into existence. Because they would say it never came into existence, really. It's always been there. It's just perhaps taken slightly different forms. Now, a Marxist point of view is that, no, that's not the case at all that somewhere in the recent past there was a major qualitative shift in the nature 
of the of the economic systems. Now, you can dispute as to when that happened. Um, I would argue that it was somewhere in the late 18th century, that is, somewhere around 1800. So it's only the last couple of hundred years. But what we have to look at then is what it is that capitalism uh, does that changes the nature of what capital is, this thing um, that is disputed and I use the slightly more complicated phrase to talk about capital within capitalism, not just uh, capital as something that you know floats around from you know slavery. Because you know, I mean, if you look at it, you know, even in slave societies, you could have big accumulations of um, wealth of large numbers of slaves building the pyramids, for example. The pyramids themselves, people would, you know, want to defend current capitalism and say, oh, well, you know, that's an accumulation. Therefore, that's the same as is going on in the world today. Can I just ask uh, you a question then? Um, yes, please. So yeah. what, where does feudalism sit between slavery and the beginning of capitalism? Do you include feudalism as part of the capitalist accumulation? No. Okay. No. In fact, um, I mean, you know, I mean, this is a, you know, a complex argument, and there's been a long-standing discussion among Marxists, and you know, what is called the transition from feudalism to capitalism. Yes. <laughs> now, um, for a whole range of other reasons, I find that a very misleading way to look at things. Partly because if you look at England, feudalism had disappeared by 1400, and capitalism doesn't appear till 1800. So you've got 400 years in which, well, what was happening? Yes, true. Um, so you've got to explain that. And also, um, feudalism dies out in England around 1400, but it really comes into Eastern Europe um, after then. And more importantly, what you've got in the 18th century is slavery mm. in the Western world again. Yes. Um, throughout, uh, particularly through what becomes the United States. Yes, of course. Um, but um, through the West Indies as well. So it's more a question, I would argue, and I mean, I'm not alone in this. Eric Williams wrote a wonderful book called uh, Slavery and Capitalism, um, about slavery and capitalism, in which what we're looking for is more the transition through slavery and through the modern feudalisms, rather than the simple notion that, you know, there was feudalism and then you know, somehow or other out of that, you you move into a capitalist system. Um, so uh, you've got to distinguish, I think, these different modes of production, and that's the hard thing to do. And you've got to think very hard about it, whereas what the apologists of the system want to do is to say there's no issue. There's nothing to explain, nothing really changed. You've always had this kind of system. There's always been some kind of coins and money. There's always been... You know, exploitation, if you want to think in those terms. You've always had some people with a lot and then some people who don't have much. Therefore, it's just a slight variation. And it now, becomes a benchmark, doesn't it? People almost internalise and accept that's the norm. Oh, indeed. Well, I mean, we are taught to. Yes. Uh, and it's a hard job not to. Mm. I mean, it's not just, you know, you know, you can say, oh, I'm a Marxist, therefore I don't accept this. But, you know, if I can put it this way, we are all swimming through a super-saturated solution of bourgeois bullshit. Absolutely. You know, and it gets to all <laughs> of us all the time. Yes. You know, and, you know, you think, you think, oh, no, I don't believe that. But because we get so little alternative, and certainly the days in which many of these things were taken for granted around, 
left-wing organisations, so much of that has just disappeared. Mm. Um, you know, you, you don't have the kind of arguments that went on through the Communist Party into certain of the trade unions and even then into the left-wing of what used to be a... Well, a Labour Party. Of yes. course, there hasn't been one of those for 25 years either. True. <laughs> so, you know, so, you know, we are up against it. I mean, this notion that the capitalist system is eternal, natural and universal mm. is part of the atmosphere. I mean, it is now as if it is part of the natural world itself to yeah, believe that. It's frightening. So, so we, have to, we have to argue and think our way through it every day mm. and to think, oh, no, I don't believe that. Well, you've really got to give yourself a reality check because in some way it will be percolating into your thinking, into our thinking, into my thinking. I mean, it's something I've got to do constantly to say, no, how do I get myself out of this when some particular issue comes up? How do I think about it in this, in, in this kind of way? Because if we don't do that, first of all, we've got to know our enemy. I mean, mm -hmm. that's why it's important to know what capitalism is. Yes. And secondly, if we think it's eternal, natural and universal, then, as I said before, then socialism is simply a waste of time even to think about it. And there's nothing so to explain, as you say. For political reasons, mm. we have to do this kind of, you know, theoretical, conceptual, historical discussion. Um, so... Uh, define capitalism. <laughs> that's define capitalism, point yes. two, yeah. Well, as I said... I would argue it didn't exist before 1800. Now, some people, even some people on the left, people who think of themselves as Marxists, would say, but what about merchant capital and what about bankers' capital? Well, certainly those functions existed before 1800. They go back quite a long way. They might go back, say, 1300 or 1400. Um, but what distinguishes them? And Marx is very clear about this. They do not in themselves add value. And that's the key point that he wants to get around to. What they do is to distribute value that's been produced elsewhere in the system. So that by themselves, they could not have resulted in a capitalist system which is based on the production of something we're going to talk about in a month's time, which is surplus value. Now, I just mention that now because capital in one sense, is the accumulation of values through exploitation. Mm. Now, um, you know, I mean, that is such a complex issue and so crucial an issue that I think we should leave that. But we do need to make it clear that we are aware of that when we're talking about capitalism today, that there is this big issue about um, surplus value and the labour theory of value and exploitation. But what the merchants do and what the bankers do... Or, well, so, Let's go back into the past tense. What the bankers did and what the merchants did before there was a capitalist system, before there was a capitalist mode of production, is not what they do when there is a capitalist mode of production. They function differently. Their purposes, their, their role within the system changes when you have a system where capital has to expand in order to exist mm. and that's the big change that happens somewhere in the late 18th century somewhere perhaps just a bit before or around um, 1800 so yes merchants and bankers were there but they functioned differently because the whole system was functioning in a different way um, and we will get around to that question of of the of the values there 
So we could move on to a third question. And here I think it's worth trying to think about um, ways of taking um, what we might consider to be, you know, common sense views um, and seeing why they are inadequate. Things that people think, oh, well, you know, if, if you're this kind of person and you function in this kind of way or you, you own this amount of something, then you're some kind uh, of a, uh, a capitalist. And Marx, I think, gives a very useful example in which he says a miser is not a capitalist. Now, you might think, well, a miser might have, you know, you know might have hundreds of millions. And surely, if they've got that amount of wealth then they are a a capitalist. Marx says, no, they're not. Now, they probably had to be a capitalist in order to get the hundreds of millions, or they might have inherited it. But if they just sit on their money, if they hoard it under the bed, if they turn it into gold and put it under the bed, if it's that kind of hoard, then they have ceased to be a capitalist. A capitalist has to put their capital into the system for expansion. Mm. And that, I think, was why it's useful to make this point as to why a miser is not a capitalist, because that helps us to see more clearly what a capitalist actually is. Is somebody who has this wealth, they may not have it themselves, they may have been able to borrow it from a bank or something, but whatever they're doing, it has to go back into the system. They have to take the, the... the risk or the chance that they will lose it, but they have to put it into the system to expand. If they are just uh, 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 sitting on it, uh, then they are not capitalists in that way. It's only by investing and reinvesting. This is the point about expansion, that it has to be that out of the value that they extract from their um, uh, wage slaves, that profit can come out of that, and that some of that profit has to go back into reinvestment. Only then are you really a capitalist. Are you what Marx calls, and this is a very useful phrase, he talks about the capitalist as the personification of capital, Uh, just as the worker is the embodiment of labour power and the values that we add into the system, the personification of capital. What the capitalist has to do to be a capitalist is to act out the things that capital needs to happen. If mm. the capital, if the person with the wealth doesn't do that, then they're not acting as a capitalist and they cease to be one. Uh, and, and you talk about homeowners in this vein as well. Ah, well. <laughs> the negative the gearing comes into it. It's a big, big discussion at the moment, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, well, and it's one of the ways in which people are misled yes. into a political misunderstanding. And, and they say, oh, well, every homeowner is a petty capitalist. Mm. Therefore, people have said, well, I'm a capitalist too, and therefore I shouldn't want to change the system. No, you're not. Um, owning, a, owning your own house um, does not make you a capitalist because you are not using the wealth in that house to exploit other people, to produce value, to expand those values by reinvesting it. Uh, if you just own your own house and you pay rates and you know whatever other charges the government puts on you, then 
just sitting on, no matter how much it might be. I mean, it might only be a very modest house somewhere in Australia that's worth, say, $200,000, or it might even be a, a massive mansion somewhere that's worth $20 million. If that's the only thing you own, then owning it by itself cannot make you a, a capitalist uh, because you're not using it to expand. You're not put that money... In fact, it would be a waste from a capitalist point of view to put the $20 million in. What you should do is to rent a room somewhere at a hotel um, and live there and put the $20 million out into the market to make more money out of that. Then you're a capitalist sitting on, you know, you know even if it were Buckingham Palace. Uh, if that's all you owned, um, then that would not make you a capitalist. So the but rent course, the rent is indirect exploitation, you're saying? Yeah. I know, yeah now, I mean, if, if with rent, I mean, if you own, um, you know, see, there for rent, you have to own another property, mm. not, the, um, not the one you're in yourself. So, you know, I mean, lots of people now, we're told, um, have negative gearing. Yes. You know, that's the tax system giving them money back. Um, but, you know, if they own another property, the rent they get from that is indirect exploitation because what they are doing, they're taking a part of the wages that are earned in the rest of the capitalist system uh, and they are taking that um, out of there. But they're not like the person who employs the uh, renter, uh, the person who is their uh, tenant in the system. There's a, a difference between those two relationships. Uh, and it's important, I think, always to get those differences clear in our heads. But if we just talk about the vast majority of Australians who either own their own property outright or and there's still large numbers of them in this situation, who are owners not of the whole house but have a mortgage from the bank or a housing society of some kind, these people, in no sense, are they capitalists. Even if the house, as I say, is worth a million dollars, as now the average house price in uh, Sydney, yes. when our told is, that does not make you a capitalist in uh, in itself. Of course, as I said, if the house is worth $20 million, there's a good chance that you must have been a capitalist yes, at some point. to get the $20 million in the first <laughs> yes, place. Unless, exactly. <laughs> unless, like the rest of us, every now and again you buy a, a ticket in a... Uh, That's Lotto. <laughs> has lotto or something, and somebody wins the $20 million and suddenly, ooh, goody, then I can go and do that. Then with the $20 million, of course, you can either spend it on yourself or give it to your friends or buy houses for the poor, you do all those things. Mm. But if you invest it, then you are on the way then to becoming a, uh, a capitalist because you are investing it and you're trying to participate within the expansion of it. So... I mean, that's a very important difference because of the ideological argument that people have said, well, you know, the capitalist apologists want to say, if you own your own house, then you're a little capitalist too. And really, you shouldn't be criticising the system at all because you're just like us. You're just like Donald Trump. You know? Oh, God. Um, <laughs> you know, so it's an ideological argument as well as a practical one. But like the miser, it helps us to understand what a capitalist actually is. So while in defining a miser, in defining a homeowner, we're not defining a capitalist, we are in a way defining the capitalist because we are clarifying 
what it is you have to do in order to be a capitalist. Mm. And being a miser and being a homeowner does not let you do the key thing you have to do, which is to reinvest in order to expand. Mm. So expanding and having that surplus value added to it are the key things, aren't they? They are indeed. And, you know, I mean, I mean, Marx also talks about what he calls the Faustian bargain. Mm, what's that? When he talks about the capitalist as the personification of capital, mm. he's really talking about real human beings. I mean, Marx does not abolish um, human personality, does not abolish all of the other aspects of the capitalist. You know, the capitalist is not a calculating machine simply. The capitalist has other desires, and Marx says, you know, it is a Faustian bargain. If, if you know, if a big capitalist say makes, you know, well, say a uh, hundred million dollars profit, or you know, I mean, Clive is constantly saying he makes two hundred million a year. Well, you know, I mean, either he can reinvest all of it, or he can buy toy dinosaurs. <laughs> yes. You know? But if he bought nothing but toy dinosaurs, he would go out of business as being a capitalist because it's unlikely that he'd be able to sell entry to his dinosaur park enough to make the profit that would give him another 200 million Mm. so that you can um, earn all this money but if you spend it on yourself um, and you don't reinvest it then you're likely to put yourself out of business pretty smartly and there's a very significant instance of where this actually happened One of the most important capitalists in all of history was J.P. Morgan, the New York big financier. In the early part of the 19th century, Morgan and his bank uh, reorganized U.S. uh, capitalist system completely. I mean, that's a different story, but it is a very important one. So J.P. Morgan's bank, and Morgan was taking a lot of money out of it, had hundreds of millions. You know, it was hugely rich. And what he decided to do, and a lot of American millionaires decide to do this, was to buy art. In his case, early manuscripts. And he spent a fortune on it. In fact, he was spending so much money on it just before he died. Indeed, if he hadn't died, the firm would have gone bankrupt because he was spending all the profits on his manuscript collection, which you can now visit in the J.P. Morgan Library. He's for his family's benefit and for his bank, it was a good thing he died because his son could step in and save them from bankruptcy. But this is a very good example of Marx's Faustian bargain, that Morgan, who had spent his life doing the right thing as the personification of capital by reinvesting and reinvesting, at the end of his life, takes the other side of the Faustian bargain and buys things not to resell them. If he'd gone into the market of manuscripts, then he could have stayed being a capitalist. But because he collects them, he becomes a miser for these things, he ceases to be a capitalist. So that's another way in which we see how the capitalist system actually functions in a real, um, you know, an actual sense of real people functioning within there. It's only capitalism if it's expanding. You're only a capitalist if the, if the wealth you've got, whether it's $1 or $1 billion, is put back into the reinvestment procedure. So, I mean, I hope that this has helped to clarify the questions that we have to ask ourselves about it. Now, next time, as I say, we'll be dealing with a much um, you know, more 
exploitation of wage slaves and the accumulation of value through the extraction of surplus value um, 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 out of the capitalist system. Um, so that's about as far as we've got for today. But, yes. You know, the, the, it's, it's, I mean, I hope there's some material I think I sent you. But I'm sure yes, you I'll put, put it on the website within the next week or so. Now, yep, just one is. question I'd ask you yes. before you go. Um, yes. Humphrey said... In terms of expansion, we're talking about massive expansions these days in, 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 in the form of the agreements, the Trans-Pacific TPP is a classic one. Mm. And all the other, there are so many, I've lost track of the agreements that are being in, uh, signed left, right and center. I'm just wondering one of these days we need to take up that almost an accumulation of different capitalists getting together to expand. How do they do, how do you fit the expansion um, notion into that sort of um, unification of capitalists across the world. It's, it's, a, it's a fascinating yeah. one. Yeah, well, I mean, as I said, to be a capitalist in one sense, you have to put your money out into the market and there's always a danger that you won't get it back. Yes. <laughs> so what they do, what they try and do, is to come together mm. to reduce the risk of competition. Mm. But of course... Like the personification story about J.P. Morgan, it's a double-sided one. Exactly. Yes, they get together. They form cartels. And after a bit, they think, oh, I can cheat on this. Yes. <laughs> I can make more money if I actually uh, don't keep to the agreement. So cartels, you know, they build up and then they fall away again. So that with any of these agreements that come in, and you're seeing it, I'd have to say, in the European Union at the moment. Of course. Where... They came together thinking they were all going to benefit out of it, and a lot of them did. Mm. You know, and mm. the Germans in particular, um, the German industrialists and the bankers have done very well out of it, uh, and they're making sure they're going to go on doing that. But some of the others, of course, are having to pay the price for it. So that the agreements are there in order to reduce the risk and to increase the return of profit, but the system doesn't allow everyone to benefit equally um, out of that. Exactly right. So we shall talk more about that because it's a bit more current and, and trying to fit those notions Marx talked about into the current situation will be really interesting. This is why we have to get clear about it because it's a current political question mm, of mm. knowing our enemy. That's right. Thank you so much, okay. Humphrey. Okay, Thanks, bye. Bye-bye. And that's brought us to the end of our show. And thanking Humphrey McQueen, of course, our independent um, intellectual, if you like, and Marcus Harrington, Kevin Healy, who came on live this morning, and, of course, Bahaman, who was the left-wing um, Iranian who bravely ventured forward to talk about his country despite security issues and so on. So we shall close for this week, and I'll be back in two weeks, and Annie and her team will take on the program next week. And Asia-Pacific Currents are standing at the door, hurrying me up, and I shall put on a song by Kev, Kev Carmody again. And have a week, good weekend, and hopefully you'll get to the protest at the ALP conference at the Convention Centre at the South Bank today. Good morning. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.